The first scripture reading for today uh, is from the book of Leviticus, chapter 16, uh, verses 6 to 10, which can be found on page 113 of your pew Bibles. Uh, this is a slight amendment to what's written in the, in the bulletin. So page 113, book of Leviticus, chapter 16, verses 6 through 10. Aaron is to offer the bull for his own sin, offering to make atonement for himself and his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as a scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the desert as a scapegoat. The second scripture reading for today is from the book of Hebrews, um, chapter 9, uh, verses 11 through 22, and this is on page 189. So book of Hebrews, chapter 9 verses 11 through 22 on 1189. The blood of Christ. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Jesus Christ, we thank you that you are our mediator, that you are our high priest, and we thank you for this sacrifice made with your blood on our behalf. 
We pray today that you would open the scripture to us, that you would open your word to us and make clear to us how it is that your blood forgives. Speak to us and do a work within us, we pray. In your name, amen. The blood of bulls and goats, sacrificial lambs, and a man hanging bloodied on a cross. What do these things have to do with each other? What does the blood of goats or bulls have to do with the forgiveness of a loving God? What means does the primitive religious rituals of a people so long ago and so far away from us have for our understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ? It can seem so barbaric, so unnecessary, so abstract from our reality and absurd to our sensibilities. And yet, I suspect if I asked you, it would be true that for many of us, this is precisely the way that we've been taught to understand the death of Jesus Christ. In this series in Lent, we're going through many different images for what the cross does, and I think this is probably the most familiar to many of us. And so it can pose quite a challenge when our natural response to blood sacrifices is what I've described. And yet the way that we understand the cross's function is that same thing. There's this disconnect in our thinking and a smallness in our understanding of the history of sacrificial lambs and scapegoats, of God's redemptive action in history, and the work of Christ on the cross. When I went with Knox College to Cuba last month, we were made well aware of the history of syncretism between Afro-Cuban religions and Roman Catholic saints, which is called Santeria. And while I'd hoped to see for myself how this Afro-Cuban religion is practiced alongside Catholicism, the best opportunity that I had was to speak to a Catholic priest at the theological jornada that the seminary in Matanzas was hosting for us. And what he shared with me was the struggle of finding animal sacrifices left on the steps of the church in the morning. And the struggle of finding, sometimes only by smell, the animals that had been tossed into the memorial for one saint or another. These animal sacrifices are to the gods, which for the people who follow Santeria have been paired with Roman Catholic saints. They're providing animal sacrifices. So these sacrifices are not the things of ancient history, which we in Canada especially sometimes think that they are. There is something deeply human and deeply spiritual about wanting to offer something to the divine about wanting to be able to be set right again, or to give thanksgiving, or to offer supplication. It's a hallmark of human religions, and while foreign to many of us gathered here today, it has been the history of humanity for many generations. Across human history and in all kinds of religions and spiritualities, people have been trying to be reconciled to God and to each other through these very means of sacrifice and the scapegoat. 
The French philosopher René Girard wrote extensively about these mechanisms for humans, how unless there was to be perpetual warring, perpetual violence, perpetual unrest, there needed to be some way to take those things that divide human relationships and place them somewhere else, somewhere where there would be no more revenge, somewhere that would bring people back together. Scapegoats offer that, A blood sacrifice settles a score that cannot be settled in any other way. As the author to the Hebrews put it, there can be no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. We see in today's text from Leviticus one of the shorter descriptions of this act of atonement. What it is that God's people of Israel did to be reconciled to God and reconciled as a community to each other every year. There are two main sacrifices we read about. The one sacrifice, a sacrifice of blood offered to God as a sin offering. The other is a scapegoat released into the wilderness, cut off from the community, left to fend for itself and to die. And after these sacrifices had been given, the high priest would be able to enter the Holy of Holies and to pray to God on behalf of the people. Every year, the forgiveness of sins. I will not try to say that these practices are easy for us to understand. They're not. I can hardly imagine in my role as a pastor having to kill an animal for any reason ever, let alone to have to do it every single year. These are different people than we are in a different context than we know. Is there something magical about the blood of bulls and goats that elicits God's forgiveness? No. But like so many other things, these things are signs that God uses to help people to know and experience him. What we can see in this story, if nothing else, is that God is interested in being reconciled to his people, that God provides a way for these people in the context of Israel in the ancient Near East, for them to know that they are forgiven, that they are the people of God. And while other contemporary tribes in these days may have sacrificed humans, these people are only to sacrifice livestock. There is incredible grace and incredible mercy in this. In the person of Jesus Christ, we can see both of these sacrifices accomplished. Jesus lived a life apart from community, scorned by many, betrayed by his closest friends, homeless and chased out of the very village where he grew up. Jesus lived the life of a scapegoat. And in his death on the cross, we can see the blood sacrifice the sin offering. He fulfills this ritual. He is the completion of this system of atoning year after year with the blood of bulls and goats. This is why the passage from Hebrews for today elaborates on this crucial connection between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the new covenant sealed in Jesus' blood. Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience And so it makes sense to them. They're familiar with the sacrificial system, and so they see Jesus for who he is, the fulfillment of that system. 
God had established for the Jewish people a new way of establishing righteousness and renewed relationship in the covenant with Moses. And with this new covenant sealed in Jesus' blood, Jesus fulfills Moses' covenant with his own life and death, and he offers something new in its place. God has provided a new sacrifice, a new way for people to know, to see, to taste and believe that they are forgiven. Jesus does these things as both man and God. As a man, Jesus offers to God the fullness of a human life. Every breath he breathed was lived in commitment to the love and worship of God. And in his death, the sins of humanity are placed on him like they were placed on those goats. Except it's not Aaron placing these sins on Jesus. Jesus takes these sins upon himself. As God, Jesus provides once again the way for humanity to know that it is forgiven to see the forgiveness and love of God and to appreciate it fully. To sacrifice oneself for another is surely the greatest act of love and service. And Jesus does this as our brother. And he does this as our God. Hebrews makes clear that Jesus is the only high priest who can truly bridge that wide chasm between God and humanity. And he can do this because he is that bridge. Jesus is our mediator between us and God because the mediation occurs within the person of Jesus Christ himself, within the mystery of a person who is fully God and fully man. The blood that makes us clean and with, Jesus, and with which Jesus intercedes even now before the Father is a man's blood. And it's God's blood. So we see how Jesus is in continuity with this Old Testament sacrificial system. But Jesus isn't only the fulfillment of this system. In his life and in his death, we can see that Jesus also subverts this system. He turns it over and he ensures that it may never be used again. René Girard is not wrong when he says that it has been a useful tool for people to mend their wounds and heal their relationships. But God's will through the cross of Jesus Christ is that this tool should never be used again. Scapegoating isn't actually that foreign to us, is it? This text from Leviticus is foreign to us, so we're not sure completely what that's about. But scapegoating... That's not that foreign to us. We've all experienced the scapegoating of school children who galvanize a group of friends by ostracizing another child. In recent history, we have seen the scapegoating of the Jewish people in Nazi Germany that that united a nation at the cost of a whole community. And we saw the Red Scare in the United States, which drummed up patriotism and the betrayal of friends for the misguided cause of a nation. We see it today in populist movements in Europe and the United States and murmurs of the same here at home in Canada, targeting people who look different or believe differently, offering this false blanket of security at the expense of whole communities. 
Yes, scapegoating is still in our culture. We still see it. We still know it. It's still familiar to us. It still serves our purposes in sacrificing somebody else for an end which we have decided is the greater good. I'm going to quote somebody who you don't hear quoted in sermons very often, so bear with me. But Frederick Nietzsche saw this necessity of these practices in much the same way that René Girard did. Nietzsche wrote, and I quote, True philosophy requires sacrifice for the good of the species. Such philanthropy is fierce and obliges us to master ourselves because it requires human sacrifice. And that pseudo-humanism that calls itself Christianity intends precisely to forbid that anyone be sacrificed. Fascinating, don't you think? When our critics see something about our faith that we so easily miss ourselves. Christianity intends precisely that no one should be sacrificed. We forbid that anyone be sacrificed because it has happened too often to too many people. And we saw in the atrocity of Jesus' death on the cross the injustice of this kind of action. Jesus submits himself to an unjust death and rising again, he greets the very people who betrayed him to it with peace. He doesn't seek revenge. The will of Christ that the author of the Hebrews talks about, the will that must be proven with death is peace. It's no more cycles of revenge or scapegoating. Jesus relinquishes vengeance and in his sacrifice calls us to end all cycles of sacrifice, cycles of scapegoating the other for our own gain. Responding to Nietzsche, the theologian Mark Heim writes, many attack Christianity as a tool invented by the strong to oppress the weak. But Nietzsche despises it for being exactly the opposite, a sneak attack of the weak upon the strong. There's something in the sacrifice on the cross that draws our attention to the terrible patterns of this world that need to stop which have gone on for far too long. And it took this perfect gift of Jesus, God's son. It took that gift dying, that kind of death, to make us aware of it. And it unsettles the powerful because it gives voice to the weak that have been victimized in these very same ways. But there's another subversion of the sacrificial motif that we see in this act of Jesus on the cross. This time, it isn't the weak dying for the strong. It's not a helpless goat we're sacrificing. It's not a minority that we're targeting. It is the very powerful taking the place of the very fragile. The sacrifice of Jesus on the cross does not encourage the marginalized to rejoice in their marginalization. It calls the powerful instead to identify with and to suffer alongside and to take the place of these marginalized people. It's actually a lion that we sacrifice as a lamb. 
Not only this, but this sacrifice is not arbitrary. Why was this goat sacrificed and the other released into the wilderness? Why was this group singled out to be hated and another group left completely alone? All of these questions fall away in this sacrifice because it is voluntary. It is the word of God made flesh who chooses to lay down his life. It's not the weak, but the strong. It's not indiscriminate, but it's eternally intentional. In this act of love, Jesus not only mediates between God and humanity, reconciling us and bringing us the forgiveness of sins, but he points toward a way where there is less sin and less suffering. He points to where the new humanity which will be formed in his name, he points to the church that will need not to continue in the patterns which we have learned so well, because everything we've ever tried to accomplish by scapegoating another person or sacrificing something else has been accomplished in this person of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes away our sin, and he also takes away any misguided reason we may have had to continue sinning in these ways. He offers himself in our place, And he offers himself in the place of others who we would like to ostracize and to target. Jesus' blood is poured out so our blood isn't. And Jesus' blood is poured out so that we will not seek the blood of another person. Jesus' blood poured out for you. There is profound continuity with the Old Testament in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And there is also profound and intentional discontinuity as it subverts such systems for the sake of the world. In that subversive act, we can begin to see something bigger in it than what the old covenant offered. We not only see the forgiveness of sins, we see the path to its eventual elimination. I hope you're starting to see that even in this very familiar view of the atonement for many of us, there are new angles. There are new and important ways of understanding it. That for many of us, even in this view, our understanding of the cross has been too small. This semester, I'm taking a course called Doctrines of Reconciliation. And conveniently, it's about exactly what our series at Knox is about during Lent. It's about presenting different views from different times and cultures and life experience about what the life and death and resurrection of Jesus means for us and for our relationship with God. And early on in this semester, one of my classmates posited this question. He said, if all of humanity was in this room, everyone who was ever born and ever would be born, if they were all somehow in this room, would sin be contained to this room? And how we answer that question reveals a lot about what we think sin is. And the way that the church has historically answered this question is, no, sin wouldn't be contained to this room if we could somehow do that. So what sin 
does this blood sacrifice, this atoning work of Jesus on the cross deal with? Is it our sins? Yes, it's our sins. It's the sins of humanity. 1 John 3 verse 5 says, You know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins. But is it only our sins? No. It's this much bigger thing as well. In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist says of Jesus, Here is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. The sacrifice of God who takes away not just our sins, but takes away the sin of the world. The Greek is clear here. It's singular. It's sin. There is a plural for sins that we see in 1 John, but here it is sin that is taken away. Sin itself is removed from the cosmos, from the whole created order. In our series on Ephesians, we talked about the powers and the principalities, and we were challenged to envision our world in a bigger way, where there are forces that control things and operate in this world that we don't see or completely understand. There are systems and structures in place that oppress people. And in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, we are challenged to consider again what the sin of the world is. It's not just those things that you do wrong or that I do wrong. It's not just the ways that we've gone away from God. But it's also this force in the world which has corrupted the whole created order, which causes all of nature to groan as in the pains of childbirth, waiting for that coming kingdom of God. Jesus takes away the sin of the world. There is a much bigger thing that happens on this cross than just you or me finding a path to forgiveness. That's big. And don't get me wrong, that happens. But it's not the only thing that happens. Jesus was forgiving people all along. And the atonement happened every year, God forgiving his people. Jesus' sacrificial work is for us, but it's for more than us. It is for the whole world that God so loved. It is for us and the complete forgiveness of sins so that we need not continue to sacrifice animals to God. But it is for us and our fully restored relationship with God and with each other so that we would no longer try to scapegoat another person or sacrifice other people to bind us together. It is for us and it is for this world that we live in, which is ravaged by death and decay, by climate change and a story of scarcity that this work of Jesus on the cross undoes, taking away the power of sin from the whole world so that the world would know the life of God springing up from within it again. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, The Christ of God and the Son of Man died for your sins. And he died to end the sinful patterns of misguided sacrificial scapegoating. And he died to take away the sin of the world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Let's pray together.
Jesus, your cross is big. And it's hard to understand. And even as you speak through your word today, many of us may have more questions than answers. And we'll need to continue to enlarge our vision of what you did for us and for this world. And so we pray that you would help us continue to appreciate that you died for our sins and that you died to take away the sin of the world. Help us to continue to lean into the mystery of the cross and to be open to the speaking of your spirit through the word. Continue to receive all of our life as an act of worship to you. Pray these things in Jesus' name.